Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. I have a lot of comforting moments from my childhood that I look back on as I get older. A lot of them revolved around entertainment, particularly television. Of all the television memories I have, though, and I might have mentioned this either on the site or on the show before, probably the one that's nearest and dearest to my heart is when my family would get on the couch and watch The Wonderful World of Disney together. Now, I call it The Wonderful World of Disney even though the show itself went through some name changes in the late 70s and early 80s, becoming Disney's Wonderful World. My family referred to it as the Wonderful World of Disney. Sometimes they referred to it as the World of Color, which preceded me. All of them in my head just sort of blended together. It didn't really matter. The programming on that show was magical to me, not just because it was Disney, and I've always enjoyed Disney's animation and movies, but because it was entertainment that everyone in my family enjoyed. Disney on TV or Disney anthology television has been running since the 1950s, and I can see why. It is a great way for a family to spend a night huddled together in front of the television set, maybe eating ice cream like I used to, maybe falling asleep during a true life adventure. The world can sometimes get pretty cynical, especially the internet. And I know a lot of people like to come down hard on Disney for what it is, read a political message into it or a cultural message. Maybe all of those things are true. But with all pop culture, you get to interpret it the way you want to interpret it. And to me, the Disney magic was real because it had the effect of bringing together my family at least once a week to all settle down, get comfortable, and agree on a television show that we could all love. On today's show, I'm going to try to cover a little bit about Disney on television. I will call it the wonderful world of Disney because that's how I knew it, but I'm going to try to talk about how Disney has been on TV since the 50s all the way up to today in all its different forms. It should be a pretty interesting episode. Vic Sage is here with another Why Should I Know This Person. Doug is going to be here with Also Ran, covering the wonderful world of Disney. And this week, Rob O'Hara Flack is going to try a brand new segment called Talking Tech. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
Walt Disney was always ahead of his time. His animation, his ability to promote the theme parks, always cutting edge. So when the brand new medium of television started to sweep America, of course, Walt Disney would be all over that. And the first incarnation of Disney on television started in 1954 as a show called Disneyland. And this show was presented to promote the upcoming opening of Disneyland itself. And you would think this is going to be a commercial for everything Disneyland. It was, but but Disney added a lot of personality to it. He would host them himself, and he did the hosting duties for quite a number of years, and made them educational, I guess what we would call edutainment, with the emphasis on the entertainment part. Now, the show just didn't cover Disneyland. They would also put in other Disney material, including cartoons and original programming, and in some instances, they would even feature some of their more recent feature-length animated films, like Alice in Wonderland. If a show was too long, they split it into multiple parts. Probably the highlight of the 50s series, besides Disneyland, was that there was a three-episode series about Davy Crockett, and that became a huge deal in America. People became obsessed with Davy Crockett at the time. Raccoon skin hats became huge, and people loved dressing up like Davy Crockett. Fess Parker, who played Davy, became a huge star, and merchandise sales were through the roof. Even the theme song, The Ballad of Davy Crockett, was a big hit that year. These were so big that they would make the move from television to feature film. So, this is an instance where something is so popular on television that it gets into the cinema. This is almost unheard of back then. Now, for a little bit more about the man who played Davy Crockett. Here's Vic Sage with Why Should I Know This Person. Hello, friends. Vic Sage here with Why Should I Know This Person? In this go-around, I'm shining the spotlight on the late, great Fess Parker. The man who would become iconic to television audiences in the 50s and 60s for his roles as the frontier heroes Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone was born Fess Elisha Parker Jr. on August 16, 1924, in Fort Worth, Texas. Parker began his film career with an uncredited voiceover as Leslie the Chauffeur in 1950's Harvey. He continued in small, uncredited parts for almost four years in films such as No Room for the Groom, Springfield Rifle, Take Me to Town, The Kid from Left Field, Island in the Sky, and Thunder Over the Plains. It was in 1954 when Parker began to secure TV roles appearing in Dragnet, Stories of the Century, Annie Oakley, and The Dragonfly Squadron. 1954 was the same year that Parker would appear in the classic sci-fi film Them, which starred James Arness. Arness happened to also be in the running for the role of Davy Crockett, but when Walt Disney screened a print of the film, he was impressed by Parker's conviction of a man who continued to hold steady in his belief of what he saw, despite the forces of authority against him. Parker was requested by Disney to visit him at the Disney Studios, and when he dropped in, he brought his guitar with him. After chatting with Walt Disney, he ended up singing a song and saying his goodbye. Weeks later, he was informed he'd been selected over Arness and other actors, including Buddy Epson, who would go on to play Davy's friend and adventuring companion, George Russell. 
Parker's first appearance as Davy Crockett in The Wonderful World of Disney was a three-part episode chronicling his exploits as a frontiersman, congressman, and his demise at the Alamo. He would go on to star in two more Davy Crockett episodes, entitled Davy Crockett's Keelboat Race and Davy Crockett and the River Pirates. At this time in his life, he became a contract player for Walt Disney and appeared in The Great Locomotive Chase, Westward Ho! The Wagons, Old Yeller, and The Light in the Forest. Parker went on to star in 1964's Daniel Boone TV series. He not only starred, but co-produced and directed five of the 165 episodes. Over its six-year run, Daniel Boone was ranked as one of the highest-rated shows of its time. At the end of the series, Parker began to option land in northern Kentucky in the hopes of constructing a Davy Crockett-themed amusement park. However, the Taft Broadcasting Company of Cincinnati, Ohio, began building Kings Island Amusement Park in nearby Mason, Ohio, which happened to be less than two hours from Parker's site. This news caused financing for Parker's Frontier World to dry up. Parker retired in 1970 and devoted himself to operating the Fess Parker Family Winery and Vineyards in Los Olivos, California. The winery was featured, by the way, in the 2004 film Sideways. Until next time, this has been Vic Sage with Why Should I Know This Person, signing off. Thanks, Vic. So, the show was meant to promote Disneyland on July 17, 1955. The opening of Disneyland was broadcast live on television as part of a special called Dateline Disneyland. This was not part of the Disneyland series, but it showed how important this event was. It was hosted by Walt, along with Ronald Reagan, Art Linkletter, and Bob Cummings. Since Disneyland opened and it wasn't that necessary to promote this brand new success. In 1958, the series was retitled as Walt Disney Presents, and it was moved from Wednesday nights, where it had been a huge hit, to Friday nights. That would last for two years, and then it would move to Sunday nights, and then Sunday nights is where it would live all the way up until the 80s. From when the show started up until the early 60s, they used the song When You Wish Upon a Star, which if you're a Disney fan you're probably very familiar with, as the theme song. And it was not a remade theme song, it was actually the original recording from the Pinocchio soundtrack, which is where that song was popularized. Now you gotta say this about Disney, they're always pushing the limit on things in entertainment. Color television is at the brink of happening. So the NBC network had the ability to broadcast in color and Disney's relationship with ABC, who had been broadcasting Disneyland and Walt Disney Presents, had gone south because there was some sort of problem between the Disneys and ABC based around the ownership of the theme parks. Either way, on September 24th, 1961, the show moved to NBC and became Walt Disney's The Wonderful World of Color. Now, to show how much of a visionary Disney was, they had actually been showing a lot of these programs in black and white, but they had filmed them in color, so they were able to repeat the stuff they had shown on ABC on NBC, but this time in color. So it was like it was brand new to everybody. A fun little fact about the wonderful world of color. In the first episode, a new character was created 
Professor Ludwig von Drake, who was voiced by Paul Fries, who discussed color for television. I remember learning about color in school. We had a film that they showed us in the library about the world of color that was narrated by Ludwig von Drake, and I'm not sure if it was just an outtake of this first episode or if it was specifically made for educational purposes in school, but I can clearly remember watching it and being very excited to watch it. The Wonderful World of Color ran from 1961 to 1969. In December of 1966, Walt Disney passed away, and he had been the host of the show up until then. They continued to use the Walt recorded intros in ones he had recorded, pre-recorded, but after that the host segments were dropped. If you happen to catch some Wonderful World of Color, you'll know that When You Wish Upon a Star is not the theme song. Instead, they have a wonderful Sherman Brothers song called The Wonderful World of Color, which obviously was about the wonderful world of color. Now to talk a little bit about an interesting innovation in technology that was brought on by Disney. Here's Rob O'Hara, or as we call him, Flack, with Talking Tech. Talking Tech. In many classic Disney feature-length animations, you may notice objects on different planes moving at different speeds. The technique of scrolling different things at different speeds to give the illusion of depth is called parallax scrolling, and it was made possible by Disney's multiplane camera. The first official multiplane camera was invented by Disney's longtime friend and collaborator Up Iwerks back in 1933. The multiplane camera was mounted horizontally and shot down through four sheets of glass, giving animators four independently controllable physical layers to work with. Because the machine was designed horizontally, it stood almost 12 feet tall. Each of the multiplane camera's four planes can move in any direction. Unlike the camera systems we have today that can be controlled by computers, each individual plane of the multiplane camera has to be moved manually between each and every shot. To give the illusion of depth, planes closer to the camera scrolled more quickly than the ones further away. Now obviously, the multiplane camera was very expensive to use, both in terms of time and money. Much forethought had to go into planning each individual shot, and each layer had to be individually painted by hand in painstaking detail on glass. The multiplane camera was given a test run in 1937's Silly Symphony cartoon, This Old Mill, and was then put to full use on Disney's debut into the world of animated feature-length films, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. One place in particular I think Disney's multiplane camera shined was in the forest. In the forest scenes of Bambi, Snow White, and even The Jungle Book, you really get a sense of being out in the woods by multiple layers of branches and leaves scrolling by at different speeds. 1989's The Little Mermaid was the last full-length Disney film to use hand-painted cells, and the last to use multiplane technology. Ever since then, the physical multiplane camera has been retired and replaced with digital photography and special effects. Today, every major animation software package includes the ability to simulate this once groundbreaking special effect. The original multiplane camera can be found today at the Disney Studios in Burbank, California, and a replica of the camera is on display at Walt Disney World. Thanks, Flack. So as the 60s ended, the show was still doing really well, but a name change came, and it became The Wonderful World of Disney, and that ran from 1969 to 1979. During this time, the show was allowed to go past its allotted time slot, and they could show longer things. For example, in 1976, they showed a two-and-a-half-hour feature-length film. 
Up until this time, they've had to divide everything in half, showing things in one-hour blocks. The show kept the ratings high until the 1975-76 season. At this time, the Disney company itself, Disney Productions, was not doing too well at the box office, and NBC was slipping in the ratings. The saving grace, of course, about Disney content is that, especially in the 70s, this was the only place you could get it. There were no VCRs, no cable television, so you could count on a rerun of Alice in Wonderland still attracting people to watch Disney programming. As the ratings started to drop and Disney fell out of the top 30 in ratings against competition like 60 Minutes, they decided to try to update it, and they changed it from the wonderful world of Disney to Disney's wonderful world. The wonderful world of Disney, just want to say, had these wonderful medley of various Disney music from the movies and theme parks. This Disney's Wonderful World, which ran from 79 to 81, had a disco-style theme, so it's very dated. Kind of an interesting thing to listen to. That song was written by John Debney and John Clowiter. So Disney had been strong in the 70s, but started to slip with a little bit more info about where Disney sat in the ratings, here's Doug McCoy with Also Rant. Hey, I'm Doug, and this is Also Rant. What also ran on TV along with the wonderful world of Disney? Well, lots of things during the full run of the show. But if you look at just the first year, you see that there were dogs, giants, Cowboys, Comedians, and G-Men. On NBC, The Wonderful World of Disney was preceded by Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, and it was followed by The Bill Cosby Show. Now, that's not The Cosby Show featuring the Huxtable family. This is Bill Cosby's first sitcom. Moving up the dial to ABC, which is how it worked in my neck of the woods, we see that Land of the Giants, an Irwin Allen sci-fi action show, overlapped Wonderful World of Disney by a half hour. The second half hour had The FBI, a dragnet-like show which featured Federal Bureau of Investigation cases. And then if we go up to CBS, we see that Lassie was on right before The Wonderful World of Disney. Then there was To Roam With Love, a short-lived sitcom starring John Forsythe, and the popular variety program, The Ed Sullivan Show. Later that evening, NBC would have Bonanza, ABC would have their Sunday night movie, and CBS would have Mission Impossible. So how did Wonderful World of Disney do against all that competition? Pretty well. It certainly outlasted To Roam With Love, so I'm Doug, and this has been Also Ran. Thanks, Doug. So as the ratings slipped, NBC couldn't find the advertisers, and in 1981, NBC canceled Disney's Wonderful World. But... Here comes CBS to the rescue. In the fall of 1981, they picked it up and moved it to Saturday night at 8 p.m. It would last for two years, from 1981 to 1983. Ratings were moderate at the time, but the big decision to end Walt Disney on CBS came because Disney had opened its own channel, the Disney Channel, on cable TV, and the CEO of CBS at the time thought that it was a conflict 
to have them both on at the same time, that one was robbing the other one of ratings, especially the Disney Channel, robbing CBS of ratings. For a couple of years, the show was off the air, although you could catch a lot of this stuff on the Disney Channel. But in 1986, a two-hour, brand-new The Disney Sunday Movie came to ABC. And that started on February 2nd. And this one was actually hosted by Michael Eisner. Although he might not have been the first choice to do it, from what I understand. A lot of other people were talked about, like Dick Van Dyke, Julie Andrews, Walter Cronkite, and even Roy E. Disney. The Disney Sunday movie had some good programming, dipped back into the Disney library. However, CBS had some really good programming, not just from 60 Minutes, but from a show that I happen to love as well, Murder, She Wrote. In 1987, they cut the show back down to an hour. Then, in 1988, the show moved back to NBC as the magical world of Disney. That didn't help its ratings any, and in 1990, the show was canceled again. Then that name, the magical world of Disney, got used on the Disney Channel for their Sunday night programming up until 1997, with Michael Eisner continuing to host. Today's show is brought to you by your local laundromat. Your clothes are dirty? Wash them. yourself and be sure. Do it yourself and do it quicker at the self-service laundry. Gotta love the laundromat. Now, if you happen to get the Disney Channel in the 80s, even the 90s, it was great because they would actually rerun a lot of the older Wonderful World of Disney, the Wonderful World of Color, all those great things. So not only were you getting entertainment, you were getting basically a Disney historical education. I was lucky enough to have the Disney Channel during that part, so I didn't really have any complaints when Disney moved away from network television. In 1996, Disney purchased ABC and revived the Wonderful World of Disney in 1997. It would run on Sunday nights up until 2003, and then move to Saturday nights, where it continued until 2008. From 1997 to 2002, an orchestrated medley of When You Wish Upon a Star and A Whole New World, the music from Aladdin, was used for the Wonderful World of Disney. From 2002 to 2008, a newer orchestrated arrangement of When You Wish Upon a Star was used. Now, I do not have this channel, but there's a channel called Disney Junior, and the Disney Anthology work continues on that channel with the magical world of Disney Junior. So if you happen to have Disney Junior, take a look and see if you can find that on your programming schedule. The show was not only a hit with the ratings throughout the years, it also won Emmy Awards. In 1955, it won Best Individual Program of the Year Emmy and Best Television Film Editing for Operation Undersea. In 1956, it won Best Action or Adventure Series and Best Producer. In 1963, it won an Outstanding Program Achievement in the Field of Children's Programming. In 1965, it won Outstanding Program Achievement in Entertainment for Walt Disney. And then in 1971, it won Outstanding Program and Individual Achievement for Ron Miller, who was the executive producer. 
Those are just what it won. It was nominated for many other Emmys that it didn't win. The show is not completely available on DVD or Blu-ray, but there are components, obviously. The Disney animated classics without the intros are available and lots of the cartoons. You can also get a great Walt Disney's Treasures called Your Host Walt Disney TV Memories 1956 to 1965, which has a lot of the host segments and pieces from these early moments in Disney TV history. It's not the best in the world, but it does give you something. I just wish that they would air these things or at least release them completely uncut, but I know how difficult that seems to be for a lot of media companies. The wonderful world of Disney and all the different shows about Disney gave me a tremendous amount of joy throughout my life, and watching them as a kid turned me into a lifelong Disney fan, and I have made an effort to watch just about every Disney movie that comes out and have gone to the theme parks as often as I could because of it. I even had a scrapbook of Disney stuff when I was a kid. I was so obsessed with Disney. We now live in a time when you can get Disney online, you can buy DVDs and Blu-rays, so you don't necessarily need to wait around to capture the Disney magic. But I think it's a good idea to make an appointment to do so, because it makes for a very special time for the people in your life, be they your husband, your wife, or your kids. This Sunday, why not grab a DVD, all sit down on the couch, and enjoy the wonderful world of Disney. Star is born, they possess a gift or two. One of them is this they have a power. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. Thanks to Vic Sage for another great edition of Why Should I Know This Person. You can find a lot more info about Vic Sage at the website where he's a regular writer, or you can email him at vicsage at retroist.com. Thanks to Doug McCoy, who is also a writer over at The Retroist and a regular contributor now here on the podcast. You can find more information about Doug over at his own blog, where he has information about books he's written. You can find that at authordougmccoy.com. Thanks to Rob O'Hara, Flack. You can find Flack's work over on the site, or you can check out his personal website at robohara.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Their secret like a bolt out of the blue, fate steps in and sees you through. When you reach upon a star, your dream
is kind. She brings to those who love the sweet fulfillment of their secret love. Like a bolt out of the blue, fate steps in and sees you through. Let me wish upon a star your dream comes true. This disco-style theme was written by John Debney and John Clowder, and it is Disco Dynamite. Groove along, people. This has been a retrospection. Goodbye.